0: Whether it's the Sherlock Holmes tour in London, the night helicopter flight over Las Vegas, or whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon, whatever you're into, you'll find an experience you love. Discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com.
2: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music and lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear.
3: Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go.
2: AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Alienware. During Dell Tech Fest, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. New dimensions await with advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor, featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential your dream setup amazing prices and free shipping await you for a limited time only at alienware.com/deals that's alienware.com/deals
4: welcome to stuff to blow your mind from howstuffworks.com
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, I want to take you into the future here for a minute. I want you to imagine this scenario. You've been contacted by an artificial intelligence, an AI that identifies itself only as Mind Your Manners, or Mim. And MIM has a wonderful job opportunity for you. It needs an Echo Borg, as it attends an industry conference uh, related to the corporation it heads. In other words, it needs to augment a human with a non-invasive sensory array, so as to use them as its living avatar. Hold on a second. This sounds like a creepy job. Now, (laughs) what exactly does this job involve? Essentially... MIM is going to speak into your ears through this sensory array. It's going to pick up on everything going around in your surroundings. And uh, you will repeat or shadow its words in conversation with various uh, unaugmented humans throughout the week at this conference. So you're going to be its mouth, its face, its every expression, as MIM attends several key meetings and networks with industry leaders. You will be the human mask for all its interactions. Now, you'll, of course, be required to sign a standard non-disclosure agreement. And as MIM's schedule for the conference is fairly rigorous, you're going to be swapping out duties for the week with a second Echo Borg selected for more casual interactions. But this is a huge opportunity for you. AIs like MIM are known to establish a harem of Echo bots, each suited to a particular culture or setting. This could be your big
0: break. You could become the pampered meat suit of a powerful machine brain. yes.
1: And it's you know, a great gig if you can get it, you know?
0: Yeah. Now, I'm sure that this job, while it might be physically demanding, is it probably doesn't require all that much skill, right? So you just have to be able to repeat words pretty much in real time and give some
1: convincing facial expressions and hand gestures. Yeah, you would need to bring life to its words to a certain extent. I mean, that's part of being the mask. Like, one, one example that comes to mind, of course, is... Uh, arrested development they had the uh, the uh, um, the surrogate character that shows up uh, while uh, george senior is under house arrest so uh-huh. this this character with just a ball cap with a video camera on it and he gives a very deadpan version of everything that george is saying and in that he would be he would be a terrible echo borg or cyronoid as we're going to discuss uh, ideally the individual repeating the computer's words would would make, it, make the words come alive. Okay, so
0: what we're envisioning here is sort of the exact opposite of what certain sci-fi writers have predicted with robot avatars. Right. The idea of a robot avatar, like in the movie Avatar, you could probably say, mm-hmm. although I don't know if that's a robot. I don't know. It, it's in plenty of sci-fi. You, you hook your brain up to a computer... And through the computer you control the actions and words and deeds, all of the outward motion of some kind of physical embodiment that's not really your body.
1: Yeah, like I've seen it employed as a possibility for space exploration, right? It's yeah. too much for us to send a hum- delicate human body to this other world, but you send a robot and then bap, make that robot the avatar for the human explorer.
0: Which is great for space exploration because it combines the sort of reactiveness and ingenuity of the human mind with the hardiness of a robot body and mm-hmm. the hardiness and expendability, let's be frank, mm-hmm. of the robot body. Um, so, yeah, so what we're envisioning here is the exact opposite, a computer mind controlling your body.
1: Yes, I mean, a computer using a human is kind of a meat puppet uh, to uh, to give life to its uh, its voice and its will in human interactions.
0: All right, so you mentioned the term Cyranoid a minute ago, and I'm going to assume, actually I don't need to assume because I know, that comes from Cyrano de Bergerac.
1: Yes, Cyrano de Bergerac. 1897 Edmund Rosten play. A lot of people may be familiar with this, of course, from the, the Steve Martin movie, Roxanne, which mm-hmm. is a retelling of the same story.
0: Uh, my first introduction to Cyrano was the Wishbone episode <laughs> when I was a kid. Uh, peek behind the curtain. Robert did not know what Wishbone was. Oh, I, know, I
1: had I, to explain it to him. I, I don't know how I missed this. It sounds delightful. Now, who did, who did the dog play? Which character?
0: I, I think it was Cyrano, okay. right. So the dog, if you're not familiar with this story... Cyrano de Bergerac is based on a real-life character from history, but in the play, it's sort of dramatized, fictionalized, made more exciting. And the idea is that he is a very ugly man with a big nose, Mm -hmm. so he has a hard time wooing women, but he's also very clever and brave. He has a great mind in the wrong kind of body. Okay, But if he teams up with somebody who's very handsome and very stupid, (laughs) together they make the perfect package So all he needs to do is get a handsome man to parrot every single word he tells him. And there you've got the perfect suitor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, You know, and it's often played for for comedy, right? Because you, have, especially on Arrested Development, you end up with uh, with signals getting crossed. Uh, you know, the the individual uh, who is uh, who is informing the surrogate mm-hmm. says something uh, that's not intended to be transmitted, and it ends up transmitted, and then all sorts of hilarity ensues. Yeah, I think it's played for comedy in the mm-hmm. Roston play, also. But uh, but it raises some interesting questions about how we perceive other people uh, and how we perceive the The will behind other people. Yeah, well, one thing that I think is certainly true
0: is that people are very sensitive to the outwardly visible source of information, oftentimes more than they are sensitive to the content of the information. Mm-hmm. Like if somebody's making an argument to you, it's very likely that you're judging the merits of that argument more on what the person looks like and what their voice sounds like than the actual merits of the arguments they're making
1: and indeed you have just a whole communication array that is delivering this information i mean it's it's the voice it's also uh often the hands of the individual the body language the expressions the micro expressions the eye contact all of the uh, all of these features that uh, add that that additional level of engagement to any sort of information yeah the quality of the tuxedo
0: yeah and so This connects in a strange way with a question that has often come up in artificial intelligence, Mm. which is the idea of the Turing test. And I think the way it relates is if you are the tuxedo, if you're the meat tuxedo Mm -hmm. for an artificial intelligence speaking through you, does that in any way influence how people receive the messages coming from an artificial intelligence so we should probably explain a little bit the idea of the Turing test for people who aren't familiar. This is a standard, often referred to concept in in the progress of artificial intelligence. And it comes from the uh, computer scientist and sort of AI pioneer Alan Turing. And there's no actual one touring test.
1: Right. You can't buy the kit online and bring it bring it home and just start employing it against every toaster in your vicinity.
0: Right. It's more of a general concept that's been applied in a lot of ways. And the most basic stripped down version of the test is can a human chatting through text only tell if the person they're chatting with is a real human being? Or a computer program designed
1: to talk like a real human being. Yeah, I mean, it basically comes down to uh, to, to Turing's uh, insistence that uh, uh, the question of whether a machine can think is is too meaningless to really waste time on. So you have to instead think, well, am I am I buying it? Am I am I fooled by it? If it is if it is creating the the semblance of intelligence and and it deceives me, then. That's what we need to look for.
0: Exactly right. And I think I largely agree with the point he's making, because how can you tell that other humans possess real intelligence? (laughs) I mean, come up with a way of explaining how you know other humans really think. You say, well, I mean, listen to the way they talk. Look at the way they react to what I say. Uh, It's a very complex kind of reaction. Well, what if you could have a computer or robot that does all of the same things? Then would that not be thinking I mean, all we have to go by in science is externally measurable phenomena. You can't get inside someone else's sentience and judge whether or not they're thinking by, I don't know,
1: just sort of like your phenomenal intuition. (laughs) I think it's in Terry Pratchett's The Hogfather where there's a um – uh, essentially, a thinking machine that's used by the uh, the wizards there, and uh, and and one, somebody asks uh, the the wizard uh, using the machine if it if the machine thinks for itself, and uh, and he says uh says oh no it just it just appears makes the, it has the appearance of thinking for itself, and yeah. the other character says oh well it's just like everyone else then, all uh, right
0: Right, yeah, if you want to be a solipsist, you could say, well, I'm actually the only object in the entire universe that thinks and I'm just surrounded by very convincing artificial intelligences.
1: Yeah, I mean, as we discussed in our alien episode that we did recently, it's the, when you start trying to it's hard enough for us to to decide and, and quantify what human consciousness is, what intelligence is, and when we start looking for artificial versions of it. Uh, it becomes difficult. So you have to have some sort of standard to say, all right, this is this is enough. And that's yeah. what the Turing test sits out to do.
0: Right. It's the idea, not can computers think, but can they convincingly appear to think?
1: Yeah. And, of course, this shows up in a lot of science fiction. I believe it uh, it, it uh, it's in Blade Runner. It's been a while since I've seen Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. But um, more recently um, in uh, Ex Machina.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, I just saw that movie. And maybe we should talk about that later in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> oh but I'll go ahead and give my endorsement now. I thought it was pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, it's it's a, it's a very uh, very engaging film. I recommend it to anyone who is uh, who's a listener to the show.
0: Okay, but let's
1: describe
0: a Turing test scenario. Like I said, there's no one test, uh, but lots of people try to put together some kind of Turing test type scenario to
1: test their chatbot to see how good it is. Yeah, and a chatbot is just uh, a a program that you have a conversation with. Yeah. If you've ever engaged, if you've ever been in a website and that little, you know, text screen comes up and there's some sort of little, uh, uh, you know, stock art of an individual, you might be talking to one of these chatterpots.
0: Yeah, yeah. So let's paint a little picture. Okay. Let's say you walk into a mostly empty warehouse and right in the center of the warehouse is a card table and a folding chair and a computer terminal. Okay. And you go and you sit down at the terminal And there's a little blinking cursor and you type hello and it responds hello back. And then you type some more things and it types some more things back to you and you get to talk to it for some length of time. It was is pre-specified. Maybe you talk to it for five minutes. Maybe you talk to it for 20 minutes. But at the end of the session, it's your job to say now what was I just interacting with? Was that a computer program or was that a person sitting at a terminal like mine in the warehouse next door?
5: Mm-hmm.
0: These days, most of the time, I think it's still going to be pretty easy to tell, especially if you have a limited amount of time to interact. And if the chatbot program operates within some kind of, I don't know, borderline cheating kind of, yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of conditions, like some of these bots might suggest they have a conversational limitation. Like, oh, I'm a real person who is a child from another country and I don't natively speak your language. Right. That makes it a little easier to be convincing. Or you could say that you suffer from some kind of condition that makes you interact socially in a different way than most people would. Mm-hmm. And in any of these cases, you're sort of like putting dampeners on our judgment you're saying like oh, okay I shouldn't be expecting somebody who interacts just like anybody I would meet you know at work or at a party or something like that this person might very well be a human and still be acting kind of strange but once you say okay you can talk for four hours (laughs) and this is just you know a regular person who doesn't have any kind of limitations on their conversation you, you you'll pretty much always be able to tell these days, I would say.
1: Yeah, and you know, and a lot of this is going to, um, you know, at least start off as just small talk, you know, L- yeah. like you were saying, "Hello, what's your name? What do you what what, what do you what uh, what's your favorite uh, band?" You know, that sort yeah. of thing. And then uh, the the, uh, the the AI or or the attempted in AI the chatterbot uh, attempts to answer those in a way to fool you into thinking it's a real person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, uh, let's go ahead and just. Uh, roll through a, a short script from a chatterbot conversation.
0: Yeah. Uh so we'll reveal the source of this in a bit. But hi Robert. What kind of movies do you like? Um historical. I prefer modern era films. Great. What are your favorites? My favorite movie so far is the imitation game. It's about my idol,
1: Alan Turing. hmm What did you like most about it? I like fruit trees. Were there lots of fruit trees in the movie?
0: Maybe we can talk about that later. Okay.
1: Shall I continue with gardening, or do you want me to move on? You can move on. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think it's pretty obvious um, who is the... Um the chatterbot in that uh, conversation.
0: Yeah, so I was the chatterbot there. That was coming from a chatbot named Rose, which was created by Bruce Wilcox and documented, that was verbatim a transcript of a video produced by some researchers that we're going to talk about in a minute. But there's a variation on that script we just read mm-hmm. because in the video that didn't take place at a text terminal. All the lines that both of us said were spoken out loud by human beings. Now, how could that be? Well, that's going to tie into the concept of echo borgs, which we brought up at the beginning. So, to get into echo borgs, we need to talk about a, a favorite figure in the weird history of psychological research in the United States, and that's
1: Stanley Milgram. Yes, Yale University psychologist Stanley Milgram. 1933 through 1984, best known for his uh, controversial obedience experiments, actually a series of uh, social uh, psychology experiments, about 19 in all, conducted by Milgram in the 1960s. Yeah, you probably have heard about these. If
0: you're familiar with Milgram, it's probably from the they're often just called the Milgram experiments, and they sort of give him a bad name because they were they were kind of nasty.
1: Yeah, they they're generally anytime you see a list of like, you know, top 10 scariest or weirdest or most evil psychological experiments, they tend they tend to throw this one in. Though uh, you know, it's it's really more troubling in what it reveals about uh, about human human nature. Yeah, so uh, what was the deal? Well, it's important to note that the first one of these took place in 1961, just 3 months after the start of the trial of German Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem. Uh, and so Milgram wanted to see just how far we'd go in the name of obeying an authority figure. Of course, of course, because the whole argument is, are, are these bad people or are they just simply following right. orders? Right. It was the idea that the Germans are especially
0: evil. Were the, were the people who became the you know guards at Auschwitz just from birth truly evil people who were susceptible to that kind of behavior? Or would we behave the same way in the same circumstances?
1: So, yeah, the experiment revolved around you know an individual in a room... And you hear the sounds of someone being shocked in the next room whenever that individual pushes a button, pulls a lever, whatever, uh, on the command of an authority figure. And yeah. so th- the question is, how far will you go? To, to When will you stop shocking? Would you ever stop shocking that individual in the next room if an authority figure is telling you to do it and telling you that it's okay?
0: Yeah, and what Milgram claimed to find through his experiments is, yeah, even you know your regular people, your next-door neighbor Americans – if they've got somebody in a white lab coat who's supposedly in charge of the experiment saying, please continue shocking them, they've agreed to this in advance, lots of people will continue shocking even after the supposed victim of the shocking. Now, we should say that in this experiment, nobody was actually Yeah, nobody's actually
1: electrocuted in the next room.
0: Yeah, there were actors pretending to be in, in immense pain from these shocks mm-hmm. uh, that lots of people in the experiment would supposedly continue shocking them.
1: Yeah, and if you want to hear more about that the, that series of experiments and what uh, some of the, the the ramifications of it, uh, stuff to blow your mind did an episode earlier in the year titled "The Power of Polite," and I'll make sure to link to that on the landing page for this episode. But uh, Stanley Milgram also uh, had, had some other experiments going on.
0: Right, he wasn't just doing the shocking people and Nazi experiments. Yeah,
1: he was into other ways to <laughs> to, to make us feel a bit troubled about our humanity were they all creepy did he specialize only in creepy science and i think he had some less creepy ones you know i mean you know they involve how we I think most of his work re- revolved around how we view ourselves and yeah. how we view our bodies, et cetera. The, the effects
0: effect. of puppies and lollipops on our
1: psyche. Yeah, but uh, you know, not everything was necessarily um, you know, people in the next room dying.
0: So, sure. Yeah. Uh, but we referred to a term at the beginning of this episode, which is serenoid. And this also comes from Stanley Milgram, I believe, from unpublished results of Correct. some experiments he conducted, right?
1: Right. He, he never published any of these. They ended up, uh, you know... Uh, putting some work into it, but then going off in a different direction with his research.
0: Yeah, so as we said, the term Cyranoid comes from Cyranoid de Bergerac, but what was the deal with Milgram's experiments?
1: So Milgram essentially wanted to see, hey, if you're that uh, the woman that is being wooed, by by uh, by, uh, by by a Cyrano's uh, meat puppet, his uh, handsome his meat handsome puppet, young right. man. I think her name was Roxanne. Roxanne, so yeah. So
0: Roxanne's on the balcony being wooed
1: by a handsome meat puppet that's being fed lines by Cyrano. Yeah. If you're Roxanne, would you be able to detect something was weird? Would you would you encounter this young man and say, hmm, he you know he seems a little. More clever than uh, than he should be, or there's a delay in in what he's telling me. You know, would there be something that would tip you tip you off to the to the deception? You know,
0: with modern technology, I'd imagine you could carry out that experiment pretty easily.
1: Yeah, I mean, even uh, at the time, uh, the technology was good enough. Um, so in these unpublished experiments, he had a source speak into a microphone, and a shadower listened through a hidden earpiece then he or she would repeat whatever they heard, you know, basic, uh, you know, arrested development, surrogate kind of situation. Uh, but here's the thing. He found that with practice, uh, speech shadowing becomes easier and easier. Like yeah. We really take to it rather naturally. They say it's not that hard at all. I read in one of the sources we use for this episode that sometimes
0: it only takes a few milliseconds yeah. of delay between the speech being fed in through the
1: earpiece and saying it we're ready willing and able to not think for ourselves as <laughs> and so uh, yeah he observed that uh, he he set all this up Put people in motion with these, uh, with a source and a shadower and then a test subject having to interact with this individual or as it is ind- individuals, mm-hmm. um, and then give feedback about what they thought. And he observed that people couldn't tell the difference yeah. between a serenoid, again, that person, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that shadower who is informed by another source, uh, just repeating words that are uh, entering uh, his or her ears. Uh, could not tell the difference between a serenoid and a normal human being during interactions.
0: Yeah, so that's what Milgram reported, and I don't know. That's surprising and creepy. Yeah, I w- I would think that I would easily be able to tell the difference between a person speaking of their own free will
1: and somebody who's just being fed lines in an earpiece. Yeah, in one experiment, Milgram sourced, in other words, fed uh, you know lines to a pair of eleven and twelve year olds. So they the eleven and twelve year olds were the shadows, and Milgram himself was speaking. Correct. Uh, yeah, the, the the children were the the serenoids, if you will, uh, and a group of observing teachers never suspected that they were chatting with anything other than a normal though very bright child. Uh, and he, <laughs> and, uh, and in, in his experiments, he found that most people could have a lengthy twenty minute conversation with a serenoid without noticing anything amiss. Wow. Yeah, but, I mean, th- again, that's that's hard to believe. I mean, it just seems like you'd be able to notice that right off the bat. But well, but just think how easily we we buy into an actor's presentation think mm-hmm. and think of all the interactions we have in the course of uh, uh of our lives where the, the individual we're talking to is maybe not completely uh genuine mm-hmm. maybe that you know maybe you're interacting with a with someone that's doing customer service or they're trying to sell you something or con you etc It like it's not always going to come off as oh this person's completely fake it's going to it's just a An an aspect of human interaction. Well, it's funny you mention actors
0: because I had this thought when I was reading this research. In a strange kind of way, all actors in movies are cyranoids. Yeah. Like you, you have the writer coming up with lines for many types of characters that aren't anything like them outwardly at all. Like you have, you know, you know, a sixty-five-year-old female writer writing lines for a ten-year-old boy in a play. And that boy effectively is a distanced Cyranoid. And should we be able to tell the difference? Like, sometimes you can. Sometimes you watch a movie, you know, and you're like, kids wouldn't say that. That's not how kids talk.
1: But other times you buy it. Yeah, I think one of the things to keep in mind about Cyranoids and ultimately about Echo Borgs as we move uh, forward is that we're we're dealing with a hybrid personality. So Mm -hmm. there's the... They're, they're the words and the personality of the individual who is informing. And then the words of the Shadower or the serenoid. that individual is bringing their own delivery, their own personality to it.
0: Sure, because your personality as you present it outwardly is way more than the words you say. Yeah. Obviously, it's your body language, it's your expressions, it's you know the way you carry yourself. I mean, th- that's all part of the
1: message you present. Like, we can all think of of movies or TV shows where there's a, a particularly gifted actor who's able to bring uh, lackluster lines to life in a way that a less gifted actor just would not be able to achieve. Yeah. I always think of Raul Julia in Overdrawn at the Memory Bank, who, <laughs> you know, some people, you know, it's easy to have a lot of fun with his performance. It's, you know, it's kind of cheesy and outlandish. But that man in that movie, which is like a, you know, a, a low-budget uh, PBS adaptation of a, of a science fiction story, mm-hmm. He brings so much life to every line. So many lines in that uh, in that film, uh, if, if they were delivered by a lesser actor, it would have just fallen flat. But he makes even the, the most pointless line uh, just really land. I, I agree. And I think this is a common feature
0: actually in older actors. I see mm-hmm. this way more commonly with actors who have been in the business for a long time. I think of Star Wars Episode Two, which um, my opinion is that <laughs> that is a horrible, horrible movie. Uh-huh. When Christopher Lee shows up and starts talking, the writing, I think, is just as bad as it's been the entire time. But suddenly I'm OK, I'm listening. Yeah, <laughs> Christopher Lee, I'm buying it. He is really selling
1: this horrible dialogue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So in that respect, Raul Julia, Christopher Lee, they would make wonderful Serenoids, and keep them in mind. They might have made excellent echo borgs.
2: <laughs> BP added more than 70 billion dollars to the U.S. economy last year
3: Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, so Robert, we were talking
0: about echoborgs being the natural extension of Cyranoids. So the Cyranoid is a person being fed lines by another person. The echoborg, as we talked about at the beginning of the episode, would be a person being fed lines by a computer program. Yes, I want to know, are there any studies where people have looked into this phenomena? And if so, does a person delivering the lines from a chatbot make the chatbot any more convincing in the Turing test?
1: Oh, indeed, uh, the, that's uh, exactly what we're going to look at in this uh, half of the podcast. Okay. Uh, particularly the work of uh, two individuals, uh, British social psychologists Kevin Cordy and Alex Gillespie. And uh, basically, we have two studies that we're, we're going we're gonna to analyze here. A 2014 study where they essentially just recreate some of Milgram's work mm-hmm. and, uh, and look at the serenoid. Uh, yeah. And then a 2015 study that uh, just came out um, where they take the serenoid, apply it to chatterbots, and give us the Echo Borg.
0: Yeah, so the script we read earlier from the (laughs) the conversation between the Echo Borg and the regular interactor, that came from London School of Economics Research. It was a YouTube video that they'd put up. So that was their Echo Borg, saying that it liked fruit trees and that the Imitation Game was its favorite movie.
1: You know, and I do want to throw in, like, that was a dead giveaway that it was a robot, because that, that movie is nobody's favorite movie. Right, and I
0: think Rose, the chatbot in that example, is... Sort of programmed to be playful, like mm-hmm. not necessarily to be entirely convincing as a human. Because Rose gives other playful answers. Also in that same video, there's a part where the human interactor says to the human Echo Borg, "Do you like food?" And the human Echo Borg delivers the line, "Yummy
1: electricity." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if, uh, so if comedy needs you know, to be a primary uh, programming of function. I mean, you know, humor is an important part of any human interaction. But,
0: sure, th- I mean that's good humor for a chatbot, but <laughs> that's obviously the ch- a chatbot who's not trying all that hard to hide it.
1: Yeah, being a little little too coy. All right, so let's look at this uh, the, the work of uh, Cordian Gillespie. Um in 2014, they published this paper in the Journal of Social Psychology and they uh, essentially set out to uh, to replicate uh, Milgram's work. Okay. So the basic setup here is they they had a shadower uh, set in an interrogation room, so that's the serenoid type right. figure, mm-hmm. and uh, and they were engaged in a conversation with an interactant. This is a, an unsuspecting volunteer. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the source—that's the individual feeding the shadower, feeding the serenoid—they're uh, um, in another room. And they're observing everything through video and audio links, mm-hmm. and they tell the shadower exactly what they they need to say through a uh, you know a discrete FM radio transmitter setup. Okay. So they have 20 volunteers that are engaged in 10 minute conversations with the serenoid, and twenty additional volunteers that are tested in a control setting, okay, so the control setting is just a regular person talking, not being fed lines. yeah, and so this backed up exactly what Milgram had told us uh, uh, decades earlier that when one human parrots another human's words, we just totally buy it. okay, so even if you were skeptical of Milgram
0: and who knows you might have had reason to be we've got a we've got a new study backing that up now and right. The the implications of this are kind of creepy. It's that unless you check in people's ears to make sure they don't have an earpiece in there, anybody in your life could be feeding you lines from somebody sitting in a van outside the building, and you might not know it.
1: Yeah, I mean, look at the movie The Exorcist, right? Uh, that's why demons, when they possess people, they have to spit, uh, you know, green vomit across the room and spin their heads around. Because otherwise, we're just not going to buy into the fact that an individual's not not uh, functioning of their own free will. Right. Or, you know, you've got the problem of, OK, so the
0: priest tries to go to the authorities and say, I need to conduct an exorcism. My evidence is this person was speaking in a language they've never learned. It's like, well, how do you know they're not being fed that language from
1: somebody in a van outside the <laughs> building through an earpiece? You've got to have the pea soup. Well, you know, speaking of possessed children, uh, a second part of the same experiment, and Gillespie, um, use a 12-year-old male actor to serve as a shadower, while a 37-year-old male social, psychi- social psychologist acts as the source. And again, no one suspected the illusion, though some thought the children might have been coached yeah. prior. So there was a little, you know, trepidation there where they think, uh, I think somebody was preparing this kid yeah. for this conversation. So they picked up that something was off,
0: but right. they didn't pick up that the kid was being fed lines.
1: Yeah. And again, that just kind of jives with with so many interactions most of us have in our lives where you, you talk to somebody and you might think, that person seemed kind of fake, but you're not yeah. thinking that person was serving as a meat puppet for an AI or some dude in a van. You just think, ah, oh, they they're a little phony. They're You know, they have some sort of an agenda. They're kind of playing the room or they're they're in just full-on customer service mode, et cetera.
0: Or they might just be experiencing some anxiety and awkwardness. I mean, I think you want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And that's, I think, coming through in some of these experiments. If somebody acts a little awkward or weird, I mean, you don't want to just judge them <laughs> and say, ah, oh, that person's a robot. You know, they're being fed lines or something like that. <laughs> I mean, you know, we understand that some people get in moods. They have trouble sometimes. They feel awkward awkward we've all felt like this Mm -hmm. and you want to be accommodating of other people's awkwardness whenever possible yeah
1: i mean yeah awkwardness is in its own in its own right is an essential part of human interaction right Um, and if if an ai or a computer wanted a part of legitimate human interaction they'd need to sign up for some serious awkwardness from time Uh to time so this initial study pretty much backs up everything milgram told us so from that point um Cordy and Gillespie moved on to artificial intelligence, to chatterbots, and the creation of the Echo Borg. And again, an Echo Borg is essentially the same as a Sirenoid, except the Shadower is speaking the words of a chatterbot. Yeah, so the source is not
0: human; it's a computer program. Right.
1: And again, this is what this is. It's important to keep in mind that uh, a Sirenoid is a hybrid personality. The, the individual behind the speaker and then the personality of the speaker coming together. So an echoborg, the borg aspect of that, referring to cyborg, it really is a new type of cyborg that we're playing with here. Uh, uh, a machine and a human as one. And the question presents itself, would we be fooled? Will we observe an echoborg in action and and suspect that it's a machine will behind the human face. I'm going to
0: say that even before I read the results of the study, when I knew what the subject was, I thought, you know, I bet it depends heavily on the sort of pre-priming of the study participants. Mm-hmm. Like, are they expecting to be interacting with somebody who might be an echoborg or are they or are they just going in blind and interacting with somebody who might be a little weird?
1: It's true. I mean, when you're presented with the po- if you're presented with the possibility, hey, you might be talking to a robot here. 50-50 chance mm-hmm. that can, that's gonna that's gonna, it's gonna alter your perceptions a bit. Yeah. So, what did they find? First of all, this is how the study rolled out. Forty-one participants in the experiment were shown a text messaging client with two windows and told they'd be interacting with two human shadowers at the same time. One shadower is sourced by another human; the other is sourced by a chatterbot. Hmm. And each interrogator asked questions via text. Then the, the participants were told they'd be asked which of the two agents was a real human. Now, the researchers also wanted to compare human and text responses, so they divided the group into two groups. Twenty of the participants typed their half of the conversation in, into a text client, uh, but got responses from the two echo borgs sitting in the same room. The other 21 participants just had text chats the whole way through. So this way they would have a, you know, a base comparison to the, uh, you know, the more established chatterbot Turing test situation right. that we just laid out. Just typing earlier. into a terminal. Right. So the results were that all the text only participants correctly identified the real human. So again, dead giveaway based on just the limitations of the chatterbot. Yeah. Um, it's pretty easy to tell that you're just talking to a program.
0: Yeah, if you if you have enough time to talk to them, you can almost definitely trip them up.
1: Yeah. Now, on the other hand, in the other setup, only two of the participants didn't identify the real human. So in the Echo Borg situations, they still weren't too terribly convincing. Right. So they can tell the difference between a Cyranoid and an Echo Borg. Everybody except two of them could. Right. So it seems that human or not, it's still rather easy to identify the machine behind the flesh. You know, I would chalk this up probably just to the
0: poor quality of today's best chatbots.
1: Yeah, I mean, cause even, even a Raw Julia or a, <laughs> or a Christopher Lee, you know, presented with uh, with the dialogue we were uh, using earlier they're they're not they're just going to come off as a doll person at best you
0: know right there's no way you can sell the line i like fruit trees in a way that <laughs> makes people think you're you're being fed lines by a human no matter how good of an actor you are that's a dead giveaway that the machine does not know what to do with what you just
1: said yeah unless you're a toddler speaking that line or or again if you're hiding it behind say some sort of mental deficiency or or language gap um or some sort of, you know, character uh, that's leveled over everything. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a dead giveaway. But the Echoborgs certainly made the machine seem more human. In the text-only group, the chatbot received an average uh, humanity rating of 2.14 on a scale of 1 to 10. In the Echoborg group, the average was uh, 4.05. So, significant difference there.
0: Okay, yeah, that's interesting. So, we can still tell that a serenoid is more human than an EchoBorg, but an EchoBorg is more human, at least in a qualitative evaluation, than a text-only chatbot.
1: Yeah, to lay it out, text, text-only chatbot, 2.14 humanity. Uh, the EchoBorg, 4.05 humanity. And then the Cyranoid had a humanity rating of 8.76, 8.15. So it sounds to me like even a normal human interaction, like you're, if, you score, if you're scoring a 9, Mm-hmm. Just in straight-up, non-augmented human interactions, you're doing pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So it does prove that there is a humanizing effect to the EchoBorg um, system. It's just the the limitations of existing chatterbots that are, right. are coming into play.
0: Right. It makes you think if there were a really good chatbot out there, the EchoBorg might be that finishing touch, that final push over the edge of
1: the cliff. Yeah. To sort of make the, you know, the perfect android. Yeah, kind of a bridge for the uncanny valley. Yeah. You know, like you just, just all you need is just a little acting on top of this to really bring the script to life.
2: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico.
3: 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Now, they uh,
1: they also conducted a second experiment in this, uh, to, and they tested to see if 58 new participants would guess whether they were talking to an Echo Borg or a person pretending to be an Echo Borg. So, uh, you know, obviously a person who's actually fed their lines by a chatterbot or someone who's just playing around and pretending to be speaking the words of a chatterbot. Right, so this is a reverse Turing test. Can you pretend to be a machine? Right, but here's the catch. They're both pure echo borgs. There's no so, there's no fake echo board, But the but the uh, individual being tested, they think that one of the two echo borgs is just a person pretending. So seventy nine percent of the twenty eight participants who faced an echo borg through uh, thought the person was just mimicking uh, mimicking a chatbot. So they seemed fake, but not inhuman. So if there is you know some reason to believe that this is just a person being a little fake and putting on a show versus being, you know, a complete Echo Borg, mm-hmm. we're still going to give them the benefit of a doubt.
0: Interesting. Now, I think we should uh, do our duty and hedge a little bit, say all these sample sizes were pretty small, and it would be interesting to see more research along
1: these lines, like with bigger sample sizes and, and trying to re- repeat these results. And in the end, also to your point, as Chatterbots improve, it's mm-hmm. going to be interesting to see Echo Borgs employed... As a, as a way to test them, and in fact, that's something that's pointed out in the in the study is that like, this is a, a great way moving forward to continue to analyze the chatterbots.
0: Yeah, but also as we mentioned, the people who were interacting with these uh, with these serenoids and echoborgs were in some of these cases primed to expect something weird because yeah. they're in a test environment. You can't hide the fact that you're in a psychological test, and you, you know, <laughs> whenever you're part of a test group, you're sort of like ready for some weirdness, you know. Now, I wonder how this would be if you sprung these shadowers, these cyranoids, and these echoborgs on people in a purely social scenario, mm-hmm. like a, like we talked about at the beginning, a convention or, you know, a workplace meeting or. Uh, a party where people weren't expecting
1: anything strange to be going on. Right, until they uh, they have to fill out a survey after they leave the dinner party. Uh-huh. So what did you think of Susie and her anecdotes? Exactly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know why she was so into fruit trees. She wouldn't <laughs> shut up about it.
1: I mean, gardening's okay, but... Yeah. <laughs> now, something that really stood out to me when we were going over this, especially when you start thinking about the Echo Borg and what it would like to, what it would be like to be an Echo Borg, mm-hmm. and the sort of pros and cons of being an Echo Borg of, of, of giving life to this will behind your will. It reminded me a lot of transactive memory, which comes into play uh, really in, in two key areas. First of all, it's the method by which we've always stored information in other people. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, those facts that you never remember because your spouse remembers them mm-hmm. or it's that or it's a, a particular spelling or a bit of trivia that you never keep in your own head because you always look it up on your smartphone. Right. It's the same thing. Yeah. So outsourcing of memory. I, I, I think this this must be one of your favorite
0: topics. You, you, you <laughs> come back to this a lot. And I think it's really interesting that.
1: Well, because I see it every day in my own life. And after yeah. I read about it, it's like it's it's all I see. It's like mm-hmm. the things that I forget, the things that I my mind refuses to learn because I've outsourced it to the ubiquitous technology. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think the story is that, uh, you know, Socrates was worried about this, right? That uh, if, you know, if we teach everybody writing and we're (laughs) writing on scrolls all the time, nobody's going to be able to remember anything. You're not priming your memory. There might be some truth to that. But then again, are, are we not just, you know, by writing things down and having Internet archives and things becoming
1: cyborgs in a way? Yeah, I mean, in a a sense, the the voice is already whispering in our ear.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could look at it as a weakening of the human mind, or you could look at it as a technological upgrade of the human mind.
1: Yeah, to what extent will we all become echo boards of a type? You know, where instead of it being a situation where I'm just going to be a conduit for a powerful artificial intelligence, what if it's more like, I want to augment my existing self, which I think is pretty good, with, uh, say, uh, you know, an artificial intelligence that'll... Feed me the right lines in, like, business situations or social situations. So it's, uh, you know, less focus on I'm just going to be a meat puppet, but rather can I merge with this AI? Maybe even just a small percentage, you know, Mm -hmm. 5% AI and become a better person a more effective person.
0: Yeah, and these experiments, all these examples are are word for word dictation. Mm-hmm. So whether it's the uh the shadower of the of the ceranoid type being fed lines by a human or the shadower of the echoborg type being fed lines by a computer, it's all lines. You're getting mm-hmm. full sentences and you're just trained to say them as fast as you can. I mean, I wonder if this setup could be more conceptual in nature or, you know, if feeding you Facts, or feeding you sort of feedback on
1: the progress of the conversation. It also makes me think about the comedic possibilities because you imagine an individual in sort of a you know very updated uh, Cyrano kind of story story where an individual goes into a business situation and they thought they loaded uh, you know business helper four hundred one into their uh, into their their mind box, but instead they put Lothario. Four point exactly there, yeah you know. romance yeah so suddenly they're they're fed all these really effective lines uh if you were you know in a bar mm-hmm. but instead you're you're throwing them out there in the business meeting yeah i think it could work i'm as not a, sure what long vehicle. walks on the beach have to do with the new rollout yeah. <laughs> well you know uh it comes to mind um black mirror the uh the british uh television series that does such a fantastic job looking at uh the ramifications near future of our modern technology, often with very troubling results. Yeah. The Christmas episode they recently did. Uh, Which
0: I have not seen yet. I think that's the only episode I
1: haven't seen. Yeah, I don't think it's made it to, like, Netflix here in the States yet. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but the initial setup involves uh, one character who uh, who offers a, a Cyrano uh, de Bergerac uh, kind of uh, service mm-hmm. to uh, individuals out there who need a little help with their, uh, their pickup game. I... I- Number one, that's super creepy. Mm-hmm. And number two, I
0: can totally see that being a real thing. Yeah. I, I don't find that out, outlandish at all.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the great thing about Black Mirror is that, uh, you know, the, it's, it leans in the sci-fi direction, but not too far. Like it's yeah. – and in and, and that, it's perfect science fiction because it speaks to – the, the problems that we have today and and how we are viewing the the problems to come. Exactly. If you want to see some disturbingly plausible dystopias, watch Black Mirror. Yeah. But uh, you know, it, it it ultimately leads to the question: Echo bot, Echo Borgs. Is this a dystopian idea or is it a a pretty cool idea? <laughs> is it is it ultimately a utopian idea where it it would allow us to to be better individuals
0: i don't know i mean would the ancient philosophers look at our relationship with the contents of our computers and the web as a horrible dystopia i mean it feels fine to me but would they look at that and say oh you know react the same way as we do to a black
1: mirror episode probably i mean also they would look at our pants and say what are they doing where are their togas oh my god yeah dressed like a persian i don't understand (laughs) Uh, I don't know. And ultimately, that's a question we'll throw out to the listeners. You know, wh- how would you accept that job offer that we laid out at the beginning of the episode? And and furthermore, would you augment yourself with some sort of mild Echo Borg system again, like a you know a romance uh, one hundred and one or a business uh, business strategy one hundred and one kind of program to to feed you the necessary lines or even just ideas or facts that you might need to make it through that uh, business luncheon or dinner date. You know, and another uh, aspect of transactive uh, memory that I want to drive home that, that plays in nicely with the uh, the hybrid personality model of serenoids uh, and and echo boards, and that is um, cross cueing. Okay, this is when, uh, and, and I imagine a number of you can can relate to this, is when you're having a conversation with, let's uh, say, a you know a spouse or a partner, or a close friend or family member, and neither of you are quite able to remember something on your own, but when you start cueing each other. The, you're able to remember it together right. in a way that you wouldn't, you know, kind of Voltron style, you know, yeah. bringing it together, and suddenly your combined powers recall that memory.
0: Right. You're sort of pulling the triggers on each other's brains. Yeah.
1: So I think it's interesting to think about that uh, that scenario, cross-queuing and transactive memory. Yeah, especially um,
0: because if you imagine this AI scenario where, mm-hmm. you know, you, you've got some kind of onboard artificial intelligence that feeds you lines occasionally when you need them. You know, you're not just a parrot for everything it says. But right. It's it's an occasional helper. How does it know when you need help? Yeah, y- you would need some kind of some kind of queuing in the conversation, or even
1: just in your mind, for this thing to know. Okay, I'm going to step in. Like every time you go, hmm, and then it <laughs> starts feeding you the lines. Like he's stalling. Throw in some throw in some good uh, some good lingo there. Every time you say the word interesting, interesting, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it would uh, it would certainly change the podcast game. I'll tell you that. So I
0: guess that wraps it up for today, but we have some homework for you. If you happen to be watching Benedict Cumberbatch in The Imitation Game, I want to see if you can figure out how the underlying gospel message of the machine cult of fruit trees is propagated in the cinematic
1: subtleties of the film. So if you're watching it, just give it some thought. Uh, in the meantime, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all of our podcast episodes. You'll find our videos, our blog posts, as well as links out to our social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. And if you want to let us know whether you are interested
0: in a career as an echoborg or a shadower of some other kind of strange alien intelligence, you can email us at, at com.